Happy summer, Digication community. We'd like to thank you for your loyal support of the first season of our podcast. After today's episode, Digication Scholars Conversations will begin a brief summer hiatus. We will return in the fall with brand new episodes featuring brilliant new guests, as well as a few favorites from past episodes. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Kelly Driscoll. In this episode, you'll hear part two of my conversation with J. Elizabeth Clark, a professor of English at LaGuardia Community College. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I was uh, curious, I know you've done quite a bit of writing about HIV and AIDS, and I was wondering if that uh, was an example maybe of that library of ideas, that there was something that created that spark for you, and if it was something that, you know, as part of the process just flowed right away, or if it was one of those things where you kind of had to sit with that for a while, and then build what you wanted to express. Could you share what that that process was like for you? Sure. Um, so my dissertation was on the poetry of HIV and AIDS. Um, and it was really looking at, because dissertations are very specific moments in time, um, yeah. I was really interested in the question of how um, in 1996, post-protease inhibitors changed the language um, of how we talked about HIV and AIDS from essentially being a death sentence to being mm-hmm. a chronic long-term illness and how that was going to affect the political nature of the poetry of HIV and AIDS. Because early on, um, the poetry was so political, and I would argue it's still political to this day, um, but how the nature of um, of that political tone shifted. Um, so... Um, I didn't, I don't think that I knew that I was going to write a dissertation on HIV and AIDS. I actually thought I was going to write my dissertation on Carolyn Forche and the poetry of witness, um, which is Mm -hmm. something that I had spent a long time thinking about. I wrote a lot about in graduate school and various courses. Um, but I was doing a lot of writing about HIV and AIDS in my own work and my own poetry. Um, Mm I have uh, two siblings who are adopted and their parents died of AIDS-related complications. Um, so HIV and AIDS is something that my family has, um, at least in from the time that I was in high school on, has always talked about. Um, and yeah. it's always been part of our family conversation and like everyone else, uh, growing awareness and um, yeah. sophistication with the vocabulary uh, around that, which changed greatly um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but so I was doing a lot of writing about our family experiences, and I was doing a lot of processing of our family experiences and what it meant to grow from a family where I was the eldest sister of one to the eldest sister of three, uh, three yeah. siblings, um, you know, and how that really changed. And we have quite an age gap. So I am um, six and a half years older than my sister. Um, And then when my parents adopted, I am 15 and 16 years older than my younger, uh, my youngest sister and my brother. 
Um, so I was doing a lot of writing about that and about what that meant. My dad is a Methodist minister, um, so I was also doing mm-hmm. a lot of thinking about um, some of the challenges that we faced as a family um, from the religious community um, about decisions that mm-hmm. my parents made. And so I think from there, then I was really interested to see what other people were writing about HIV and AIDS. And so I kind of worked my way into a dissertation that yoked my interest in how writing is always a political act, um, poetry mm-hmm. that I was writing, to then analyzing poetry of HIV and AIDS. Um, so it was, a, it was a little bit of an evolution, but I didn't go to graduate yeah. school thinking that that was the dissertation I was going to write. Um, I, yeah. I, it evolved over time out of a lot of different experiences and conversations. Yeah, yeah. And um, as part of that, you know, creating that dissertation, were there some surprises that came up for you about the kind of person that you had become as part of that experience? Hmm, that's a really, no one has ever asked me that. That's a really good question. Um, I don't think that there were surprises at the time. Um, I was very much writing out of a place of politics and activism and um, Mm -hmm. personal politics. And so I think that my writing was very much mirroring where I was at at the time politically um, and evolving, right, as a young adult and trying to figure out the world and um, what it meant to be emerging as an adult in, in, um, in the world. I think more interesting to me just in terms of my writing as a process was that um, I've published several interviews. Um, so as part of that dissertation, I was lucky enough um, that many poets were generous enough uh, with me to volunteer their time and I interviewed them. Um, so another piece yeah. of the dissertation are original interviews um, with uh, a number of leading poets who were writing about HIV and AIDS at the time. And I published some of those interviews um, and some pieces of my dissertation. The the full dissertation is not published, but there are pieces of it that um, appear in publications. And then I was kind of done. You know, I had done what I set out to do. I was really satisfied with it. And I didn't imagine life as a literary scholar thinking about HIV and AIDS. Um, I had kind Mm -hmm. of set out and achieved what I set to achieve. So that was done. Like I was ready to leave that piece of writing. So that piece of writing exists as my dissertation on the shelf at Binghamton, Um, you know, and then I have a copy here Um, and, you know, that was it (laughs) Uh, moving on. But I think in terms of the library of ideas, what I see is a real constant throughout all of my work is that I've always been interested in the relationship between science and writing and how science inform Mm -hmm. the, how science can inform our writing. Um, So at that time, I was really thinking about um, medicine and the medical humanities, and now I'm really focused on climate change in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. uh, Yeah. That parallel. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. Um, Have you encountered in your teaching uh, some students that you feel kind of share that... um, 
kind of share that understanding of of how science plays plays a part in the in politics and um what what kind of connections are you able to have on that um kind of understanding with your with your students yeah so you know i mean i think my students have lots of varied experiences in the world um, and lots of varied interests and many interests that surprise me, things that I never would have thought about. Um, I do teach a version of our capstone course that I, where I focus on utopias. Um, oh, wow. And in, yeah, in that course, uh, we're reading both utopias and dystopias. And as part of their capstone project, I ask students to create a utopia where they solve a problem that exists in our world today. So they have to do, it's a pretty extensive research project where they're researching problems that exist in our world um, Mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out how they would write a world where they can solve the problem and dystopia doesn't happen right, where they can think ahead about the kinds of things that we see happening in dystopias and avoid them. Um, so yeah. it's it's an interesting logic problem. What a great, um, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really fun. And students really like it. And we do a lot with, you know, how we're going to present these worlds and, um, you know, and how they're going to present their research and, and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I find in that class, my students tend to be really interested in the environment, climate change, mm-hmm. and medicine. Um, so those are the those are the kinds of technologies that I would say dominate those uh, dominate that assignment where students are really trying mm-hmm. to think their trying to science their way through yeah. those problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that. that's where I see a lot of that kind of thinking where students are really taking on the science and the technology and trying to apply it to what they're doing. Maybe less so um, in my composition classes. Uh, it really depends on what, certainly students have done a lot of writing about climate change in the last several years. Absolutely all, all of this year, students have been writing about um, medicine and healthcare and coronavirus and plagues um, yes. if, they, if they wanted to. Um, that was kind of an interesting space where I was really thinking about how not to mandate that as, as an assignment because I wanted students who needed a break from all of that to not have to right. write about it. But I also wanted to create a space where students who needed to process it could. Um, yeah. So yeah. was doing a lot of work in the syllabus to, to figure that out. Um, but I would say I don't see necessarily science as like a dominant theme in what my students choose to write about. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely, you know, can be there and is there from time to time. So with the the capstone, uh, as you were speaking of that, about that, I was remembering um, a presentation that you made that was about the kind of the fundamental differences between an e-portfolio created for a capstone versus one that might be created for first year writing or maybe mm-hmm. a composition course. And um I can't remember what year that resource was created, but some time ago. Um, but I would be interested in hearing what your perspective might be on that today. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I really have always taken as my guiding principle that the portfolio is a student space. Um, and when I work with faculty and talk with faculty, um, no matter how faculty feel about their assigned or chosen learning management system, that's our space. Mm -hmm. That's our digital space <laughs> where we create it. Um, CUNY uses Blackboard. And I have enabled the, um, the spaceship background in all of my courses when you go in because <laughs> it's the most interesting one um, to me. So that's what it looks like. So whether students like it or not, and whether it is, you know, has any clear <laughs> parallel to writing, uh, we, have, we have a spaceship background. But what I love about portfolio and what I really emphasize is that's, that's a student space, right? That's the student curated mm -hmm. space. It's the student meaning making space. It's the student reflection space. Um, so in, there's a conversation, right, between the classroom and the work that we're doing in the classroom and what goes into the portfolio. But at the end of the day, it is a, it is a student space. So I'm always really interested in how students translate what we've talked about in the classroom into their own space. I would say that portfolios in the writing classroom are almost always process-based. So I'm looking for them to show me how when they leave English 101 or basic writing and they go into a future class where they're going to have to use writing, but without the scaffolding and structure of the composition class, how are they going to figure that out on their own? So how are they going to get from the assignment to the finished product on their own. So students take a lot of different, um, a lot of different paths to show me how that's going to happen. And they have a lot of choice in doing that. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's really fun and it can be a really fun and inventive space, but the writing portfolios are definitely process-based um, both by design, by the assignment um, that I am giving them and by their interpretation of that assignment. The capstone portfolio, I think, is uh, much more, can be a much more focused and showcase kind of space, depending mm -hmm. on the student and depending on their goals and depending on their major. So I teach in the liberal arts and our capstone um, course is in the liberal arts. It's called LIB 200, um, Science, Technology, and Humanism. And in that course, I might have students who are photographers and students who are English right. majors and students who, um, you know, come from a variety of different disciplines in the humanities. So some of them very much already speak the language of professional portfolios if they're coming from an art background or a writing background. But there are also students in um, in the capstone course who are really interested in continuing that idea of thinking about process, um, who want to really in the capstone portfolio, think about an early piece of work and then this capstone research project that we're doing and how they got to the capstone project showing their process over time because they're not intending to use their portfolios to get a job. Um, they're really using it as a, as a learning portfolio. Um, so right. I think that depending on students' goals in the capstone course, uh, particularly in the liberal arts, um, it can look very different. Now that's different when you um, talk with our faculty in nursing or um, in occupational health. Uh, those portfolios, I think, tend to be much more showcase and uh, focused on getting a job. 
Yeah. Um, but in and the humanities, field experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But in the humanities, I think there's there's a more um, there's a wider field to explore and to think about their goals uh, in association with the capstone. But what I am really looking for in the capstone portfolio and what we do spend a lot of time talking about there is really that capstone reflection. And how are you pulling together what you have learned at LaGuardia as you are preparing to go on to your next step? And how have you Mm -hmm. made meaning out of all of these different courses that you've taken? Yeah. And so as part of that uh, kind of conversation about the, the work, do you often have the students within this capstone share their e-portfolios with each other? Um, and if they do, is it, you know, at what stage do you find that helpful? Yeah, typically in all my courses, when we're working with portfolios, we do gallery days uh, where students are presenting their portfolios. Um, We also share portfolios throughout the whole semester. So um, in my classes, portfolios are really a living space. So if we are now, obviously, this has been different in the last year um, because we're on we're online. Things are a little um, different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything's a little different right now. But let's say under normal circumstances, um, when I'm teaching, I'm usually teaching a computer lab. Um, so students mm-hmm. are actively working on their portfolios while we are in class. And we have a conversation about this in the beginning of the semester when we're setting up our expectations. But um, I will ask students to share pieces of their portfolio on the projector so that we're all looking at it and workshopping it together as part of class. So they are seeing portfolios emerge throughout the semester um, in the course, and they are actively sharing that throughout the semester. And we talk about it as a changing space, right? It's not about like, oh, you projected this portfolio page today and you had a spelling error and that means something terrible. It's like, oh, you projected (laughs) your portfolio page. Is it even going to look like that at the end of the semester? You know, let's talk about like, is that the font you want? Are those the photos you want? Um, Do you want to include video? And so I think that as a, as a community, we really talk in my classes about the portfolio space as this living, breathing space. And then there does come a point where then it's going to be time for me to take a look at it and offer um, feedback and a grade. Um, mm-hmm. So there is a definite stopping point in the semester, um, a, a, not a stopping point, like a culmination point. Um, mm-hmm. But throughout the semester, it's very much a living document. Oh, that's wonderful. It it almost sounds like it's a bit of a studio environment. You know, it's Absolutely. in a computer lab, but it sounds like all the time, you know, student things are being put up and you're having conversations about the work and they're working alongside each other. So that that's really exciting. I love that. And they're show- so and they're you- they're getting inspired from one another and they're of showing course. one another stuff and you know. Yeah. 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 Um that's huge. And I'm so excited to hear that, you know, with um, my background and uh, my co-founder, uh, Jeffrey Yan's background in art and design, you know, this kind of studio-based pedagogy is huge for us. And, you know, we'd love to hear stories of how people are um, 
kind of embracing that with the, you know, creating of the, the work itself, but also in the creation of the portfolio and having that kind of dialogue along the way. Um, it was so crucial to us when we were at Rhode Island School of Design, and it's really fun to learn about different ways that that kind of teaching and learning is happening in so many different disciplines. Absolutely. Yeah. I love thinking about the classroom as a studio space. The classroom as a studio space is just so important, I think, um, you know, in so many disciplines to think about how we're really applying what we're learning together and learning from one another. Yeah. So you were speaking a little bit about the culmination point. So uh, when they do have to uh, essentially kind of turn it in and get a grade on it. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about what that uh, assessment process is like for you and also how technology has kind of shifted maybe how that how that is done and, um, and cause I know you've done some articles about that topic as well. And, uh, I'd love to hear your, your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, so obviously, um, I am often experimenting with new things, uh, in the classroom and trying new things out. Um, so things evolve, things change. Sometimes I go back to something that I did before because I think it works better than what I'm doing now. Um, currently, and for the past several years, I'm working with contract grading. Um, as mm -hmm. a department, a number of us, uh, read, Aseo Anue's uh, book on anti-racist pedagogy and thinking about labor-based contract grading. Um, so I have very much modeled my uh, current grading structure for the past several years on um, the conversations that we had in the department coming out of that common reading. Um, so I'm very much privileging labor based um, work in my classes rather than this idea of this is an A paper, this is a B paper um, in terms of the content. And I also think that for me, that fits much better into my ideas about writing. I'm not really sure about these somewhat artificial ideas of this is the best writing, you know, this, because I think that all writing could often be better. I mean, I'll read a published book and think, I hate this ending. Why didn't they, they should change this ending. Like, so they needed a workshop group to talk about like what's going on here. Cause they like, these pieces did not come together. Um, I was just, I, not surprisingly, I'm in a scuba related book group. Um, and we oh just, goodness. yeah, yeah. So we, uh, it's being run um, by uh, a friend and great diver who is also a PhD in ocean literature, Kelly Bushnell. Um, and she had us reading Migrations, which is this astonishing book set slightly in the future looking at climate change. And it follows mm. the main characters following the last migration of the Arctic terns. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, but it is a very rare book for me that when I got to the end, I was thoroughly satisfied with the ending. I thought, wow, <laughs> like this, this, like this is the way a book should end. Um, this, like this pays off everything that was happening. But I'm, 
you know, I'm often frustrated even with things that are published, you know, because I, I see mm-hmm. ways that it could be better, both in my own writing. Um, I, I cringe looking back at things that I have published previously because I see all the ways that it could be better because I know more, because I have a different idea about a, you know, a turn of phrase or a way of explaining something. Um, so I think that for me, contract grading is, is a much better fit with my pedagogy and with how I think about writing. So what I'm really interested in is what did you want to get out of it and what did you put in to kind of get your writing to this point? And that looks different mm-hmm. for every student in terms of what their goals are. Right, right. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I wonder for the students, you know, how mind blowing it is to hear um, the way that you approach assessment uh, I imagine that they haven't had too many teachers along the way. And do you find that your students um, find it refreshing or do you find that they're sometimes kind of grasping it? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? What is the right answer? And, <laughs> and how do you, how yeah. do you kind of help them navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, there are a bunch of people in my department who are doing this. This has uh, evolved out of a, a communal conversation that we've had. So I would say it's not necessarily when students come to me, I'm not necessarily the first faculty member at LaGuardia who they're working with who's doing this. So mm-hmm. it's also a bit of an emerging conversation as a department. Um, not everybody's doing it, but there there are a number of us. Um but yeah, no, I definitely have students who are like, what, it, just tell me what I need to do to get an A, right? <laughs> and I mean, that fair, fair enough, right? I mean, when, when students are juggling four or five different classes, they're working full time, they're caretakers for family members yeah. or children, you know, they want to know what they need to do. And so yeah. I definitely have an eye towards that when I'm writing rubrics, when I'm talking with them about mm-hmm. expectations, when I'm talking with them about, you know, what needs to happen in a class. And I think it's really important for us as faculty members to be transparent and when possible also to give students input into how they're going to be assessed and what's happening in the classroom because it's not my class it's our class um but all but also um you know faculty have an institutional responsibility to be assessing student work so i think all of that exists on a continuum um but i think that having those conversations with students not having what i what i think of as sort of arbitrary um expectations about an A paper, a B paper, a C paper, I think is often very, um, it's a relief to students. They're focused Mm -hmm. on the work. They're not focused on the grade. They're focused on the writing. They're not focused on, you know, on a particular number or letter. Mm -hmm. And And that also frees me up in my, in my feedback to them. Because then I'm really yeah. focused on my feedback on the writing and on what they can achieve in a revision. And so I think that in my feedback, I'm more of a coach. And when I'm yeah. more of a coach talking about their writing, I'm helping them be better writers. Because I'm really focusing in on, here's the thing that I want you to think about. Or here's a thing that would really make this piece radically mm-hmm. different. Yeah, and I can imagine for the students, too, you're probably getting much more honest reflections about the writing that 
than you probably would have if you had a different, you know, if you were using a different model. Um, well, yeah, because talking about failure is baked into the process. It's not, yeah. oh, I failed at this. It's like, oh, here's where it went wrong, but here's how it could have been better. So in that sense, I mean, really much more of a studio model of writing, of thinking about, all right, so that didn't go so well. How, what would you do differently next time? Or how would you revise yeah. this to make it go differently? Yeah. Yeah. It's important to celebrate those failures. You know, uh, how Absolutely. would we learn anything if we got it right all the time? So, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's great. Um, well, Liz, I so appreciate your time today um, with your background. Absolutely. I, this is fun. So fun. Um, to close our conversation out today, um, because you have such a um, wealth of knowledge about um, the ocean and um, the environment, you know, you mentioned the the book earlier that had a really good ending, but is there one that you feel like everyone could really benefit from reading so that um, we feel very compelled to to really take care of the the ocean and it could be any level you know if it's one that's geared more towards yes. young adults or, I'm yeah. totally not going to remember the title so I'm going to share the title with you okay. later um, okay <laughs> but I'll tell you about the book um, and then we can put that sure. we can put the title in the um, the notes for this um, yes I read an amazing nonfiction book about the Chesapeake Bay, looking at how climate change is coming for the islands of the Chesapeake Bay, which is not how we might normally think of the Chesapeake Bay. And it really studies life on this very small island and looks at how life is changing and how mm. um, within the next few years, the people who live on that island are going to be our, our first climate refugees. Um, it's an amazing book. Um, so I will uh, totally blank on the title because I wasn't expecting that <laughs> that question today, uh, but I, I will yeah, share no, it. You and, never know what I'm going to throw at you. And I, I highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah. I just feel like with your experience, um, it's beneficial for us to, to learn, right? It's, I, I really think until we have the opportunities to kind of feel probably what these people on this island are um, expecting to happen and how they're preparing for that and what it's been like there over the generations and how different it is now than maybe it was even 10 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it helps make it real for those that aren't seeing it day to day. So that's, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Liz. It was wonderful to talk to you today. And I, I hope we can. It was great to talk to you. Connect again. Yes. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative ePortfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius and Amanda Driscoll. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for watching.